It's October, our favorite time of year. It's the witching hour here at the podcast about everything. And we thought we would do a special Halloween episode. So tonight, we will read a couple of our favorite scary stories just for our faithful listeners. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Don Mast, and this is the podcast about everything. And here is a little bit more about me. Uh, some people say I'm creepy. I think it's because it's just Halloween, but who knows? Mike will probably clear, uh, fill you in on that. But I am the bookstore owner of Books and Time on Instagram. I'm also the co-founder of Rough House Marketing, which is a father and son marketing business. And I am an award-winning software and technology uh, and advertising executive. Uh, have been doing all that stuff uh, for many, many years. And I'm a husband, and I also collect stuff from dead people. Uh, let, let, let me rephrase it. Uh, I'm an antique collector. I collect like like uh, phonographs and things like that. You know, the old Edison players, as well as uh, smelly old books that may be up in your grandma's attic. And those hard-to-see creepy tin types, it just kind of freak people out when they look at them because you never really know what you see there. Um, and also old cameras. And so now I'd like to introduce my creepy co-host, the talented Mike Allison. Hi, I'm Mike Allison, and I'm just naturally creepy. Uh, I'm an artist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a muralist. I'm a restorer of old buildings and an amateur but enthusiastic uh, historian and also an over-the-top enthusiastic folklorist. And this being October, little special effect there. Um, oh. Actually, okay. that was to, celebrate, to celebrate, Don, I'm about to crack open this fine cask of Armontillado wine. Uh, just come on in, Don. Be careful. Don't trip over the pile of bricks and, you know, just ignore the buckets of mortar. You look like you need a drink, my friend. <laughs> wow. Okay, so my intro about you being creepy. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I, 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 I don't want to you know be you know make you insulted or anything but i think i'm gonna pass oh that's cool um i thought <laughs> best to start it off with a poe reference anyway so let's tell some scary <laughs> stories Don. that's what this broadcast is about uh so what have you got okay all right i have this terrifying story from when i was uh you know, from my early childhood, from when I was a kid, I was at Boy Scout camp. It was like a winter camp. And all of us boys are in like these, this like cabin out in the middle of the woods. It was probably like Camp Anderson here in Tyrone, Pennsylvania or what have you, but it was out in the middle of nowhere. And our scoutmaster put on this old grainy reel to reel film called The Boarded Window. And I hadn't seen it before this time. I was a young kid. And it's a short story by Ambrose Beers. In 1830, only a few miles away from what is now the great city of Cincinnati, lay an immense and almost unbroken forest. The whole region was sparsely settled by people of the frontier, restless souls who no sooner had cut fairly habitable homes out of the wilderness and attained to that degree the prosperity which today we would call the state of extreme poverty then for some mysterious reason they had an impulse in their nature to abandon and push farther westward to encounter new perils in an effort to regain the meager comforts which they had voluntarily renounced many of them had already forsaken the region for the remoter settlements but among those remaining was one who had been one of the first arrived. He lived alone in the house of logs surrounded on all sides by the great forest, of whose gloom and silence he seemed to be part, for no one had ever known him to smile nor speak a needless word. His simple wants were supplied by the sale or the barter of wild animals in the river town, for not a thing did he grow upon the land which, 
In needful, he might have claimed by right of undisturbed possession. There were evidences of improvements. A few acres of ground immediately about the house had once been cleared of its trees. The decaying stumps of which were half concealed by the new growth that have been suffered to the repair of the ravage wrought by the axe. Apparently the man's zeal for agriculture had burned with a failing flame, expiring in ashes. The log house, with its chimney of sticks, its roof of warping clapboards weighed with traversing poles, and its chicking of clay had a single door and a directly opposite window. The latter, however, was boarded up. Nobody could remember a time when it was not, and nobody knew why it was so closed. Certainly because of the occupant's dislike for air or light, for on those rare occasions when a hunter would pass by that lonely spot, the recluse had commonly been seen sunning himself on his doorstep, if heaven had provided sunshine for his need. I fancy there are few people living today who ever knew the secret of that window, but I am one, as you shall see. The man's name was Murlock. He was apparently 70 years old. Well, actually about 50. Something besides years had had a hand in his aging. His hair and long, full beard were white, his gray, lusterless eyes sunken. His face singularly seemed with wrinkles which appeared to belong to two intersecting systems. In figure, he was tall and spare, with a stoop of the shoulders, a burden-bearer. I never saw him. Those particulars I learned from my grandfather, from whom I had gotten the man's full story when I was a lad. He had known him when he lived nearby in those early days. One day Murlock was found in his cabin, dead. It was not the time or place for coroners and newspapers, and I suppose it was agreed that he had died from natural causes, or I should have been told, and I just don't remember. I know only that with what was probably a sense of the fittest of things. The body was buried near the cabin alongside the grave of his wife, who was preceding him so many years that local tradition had retained hardly a hint of her existence. That closes the final chapter of this true story. Indeed, the circumstances that many years afterward in company with an equally intrepid spirit. I penetrated to this place and ventured near enough to the ruined cabin to throw a stone against it and ran away to avoid the ghost which every well-informed boy thereabouts knew haunted that spot. But there is an earlier chapter that was supplied by my grandfather. When Murdoch built his cabin, he began laying sturdily about with his axe to cut out a farm. The rifle, meanwhile, his means of support, he was young, strong, and full of hope. In that eastern country whence he came, he had married, as was the fashion, a young woman in all ways worthy of his honest devotion, who shared all the dangers in all of his privacies, of his lot, with the willing of spirit and light heart. There is no known record of her name, of her charms of mind and personal tradition is silent, and the doubter is at liberty to entertain his doubt, but God forbid that I should share it. Of their affections and happiness there is abundant assurance in every added day of the man's widowed wife and widowed life for what the magnetism of a blessed memory could have could have chained 
that venturesome spirit to the lot like that. One day Murloc returned from gunning in a distant part of the forest to find his wife prostrate with fever and delirious. There was no physician within miles, no neighbors, nor was she in a condition to be left to go summon help. So he set about the task of nursing her back to health. But at the end of the third day, she fell into unconsciousness, a rid, and so passed away, apparently with never a gleam of returning reason. For what we know of a nature like his, we may venture to sketch in some of the details of the outline picture drawn by my grandfather. When he convinced that she was dead, Murdoch had a sense enough to remember that the dead must be prepared for proper burial. In performance of this sacred duty, he blundered now and again, did certain things incorrectly, and others, which he had did correctly, were done over and over. His occasional failure to accomplish some simple or ordinary acts filled him with astonishment like that of a drunken man who wonders at the suspension of familiar natural laws. He was surprised, too, that he did not weep, surprised and a little ashamed. Surely it is unkind to not weep for the dead. Tomorrow, he said aloud, I shall have to make a coffin, a rid, dig the grave, and then I shall miss her when she is no longer in sight. But now she is dead. She is dead, of course. But it is all right. It must be all right. Somehow, things cannot be so bad as they seem. He stood over the body in the fading light, adjusting the hair and putting the finishing touches to the simple toilet doing all mechanically with soulless care. And still through the consciousness ran an undersense of conviction that all was right, that he should have her again as before and everything explained. He had no experience in grief. His capacity had not been enlarged by use. His heart could not contain it all, nor his imagination rightly conceive it. He did not know he was so hard-struck that knowledge would come later and never go. Grief is an artist of powers, as various as the instruments upon which he plays, his lament for the dead, evoking some of the sharpest, shrillest notes from others, the low, grave chords that throb recurrent like the slow beating of a distant drum. Some natures, it startles, some it stupefies. To one it comes like the stroke of an arrow, stinging all of the sensibilities to a keener life. To another, as the blow of a bludgeon, which in crushing benumbs. We may conceive Murdoch to have been that way affected. For, and here we are upon surer ground than that of conjecture. No sooner had he finished his pious work than he sinking into a chair by the side of the table upon which the body lay, and noting how white the profile showed in the deepening gloom, he laid his hands and his arms upon the table's edge, and he dropped his face into them, tearless yet very weary. And at that moment came in through the open window a long wailing sound like the cry of a lost child in the far deeps of the darkened woods. But the man didn't move. Again, the nearer than before, the sound of this unearthly cry upon his failing senses. Perhaps it was a beast. Perhaps it was his dream. For Murloc was asleep. Some hours later, as it afterward appeared, the unfaithful watcher awoke and lifted his head from his arms 
intently listening. He knew not why. There in the black darkness by the side of the dead, recalling all without a shock, he strained his eyes to see he knew not what. His senses were all alert. His breath was suspended. His blood had stilled its tide as if to assist the silence. Who, what had awoken him, and where was it? Suddenly the table shook beneath his arms, and at the same moment he heard, or fancied that he heard, a light, soft step. Another, another, sounds as of a barefoot upon the floor. He was terrified beyond the power to cry out or to move. Perforce he waited, waited there in the darkness. Through seeming centuries of such dread, as one may know, he yet lived to tell. He tried vainly to speak to the dead woman's name, vainly to stretch forth his hands across the table to learn if she were there. His throat was powerless. His arms and hands were like lead. Then occurred something so frightful. Some heavy body seemed hurled against the table with an ipdimus that pushed it against his breast so sharply as nearly to overthrow him. And at the same instant he heard and felt the fall of something upon the floor with so violent a thump that the whole house was shaken by the impact. A scuffling ensued and a confusion of sound impossible to describe. Murloc has risen to his feet. Fear had by excess forfeited control of his faculties. He flung his hands upon the table. There was nothing there. There is a point at which terror may turn to madness, and madness incites to action. With no definite intent, from no motive, by the wayward impulse of the madman, Murloc sprang to the wall with a little groping, seized his loaded rifle, and without aim, discharged it by the flash which lit up the room with a vivid illumination. He saw an enormous panther dragging the dead woman towards the window, its teeth fixed around her throat. Then there were darkness, blacker than before, and silence. And when he returned to consciousness, the sun was high and the wood vocal with songs of birds. The body lay near the window where the beast had left it when frightened away by the flash and report of the rifle. The clothing was deranged, the long hair in disorder, the limbs lay anyhow. From the throat, dreadful laceration had issued a pull of blood not yet entirely coagulated. The ribbon which he had bound the wrist of his wife was broken. The hands were tightly clenched. Between the teeth was a fragment of the animal's ear. Wow, Don, that's a classic fear story. Yes. It, again, you know, it, it, it's really one of those things that when I was a child, it really kind of like, it never left my mind. I mean, it left that imprint. And it's really a great story from a forgotten writer, um, uh, Mr. Beers. You know, it, it, I, I wanted to share a little bit about Ambrose because honestly, he seems to be very underrated and often overlooked as a great writer. Um Ambrose, you know, his literary reputation is based primarily on his short stories about the Civil War and the supernatural. His body of work makes up, you know, a relatively small part of his total output. Uh, you know, he is compared to Edgar Allan Poe, and, you know, 
these stories share an attraction to, for example, death in its more bizarre forms, as you just heard, um, featuring depictions of like mental deterioration, you know, uh, uh, unworldly or otherworldly manifestations and the horror of, you know, existence in a meaningless universe. And, you know, like Pope, Beers uh, professed to be mainly concerned about his artistry for his work, yet critics find him more intent on conveying his his pessimism and, you know, his, his bare um, uh, economical style of the supernatural horror is usually distinguished from his uh, verbal lavish, from the verbally lavish tales of Poe, for example. And I must say a little bit about his background. He was raised in a, in a Calvinist family and, you know, he definitely wasn't down with that. And so he left at a very young age. He moved out, he moved away to start a new life. And he held, you know, various jobs early on uh, from like being a printer, which, you know, I thought that's kind of where he would have gotten into all of his writing. I mean, because he was a, you know, he really loved to read. He read like crazy, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really from when he was a printer, but instead, you know, he went on to be like a bricklayer and he did so much. And then, you know, he joined the civil, you know, he became part of the civil war. He was a topographical engineer you know which means that he worked with a lot of the maps and worked with the generals and so on to kind of plan out the you know how these attacks are going to happen and he also fought in some of the greatest battles including uh the, the battle of shiloh the battle of stones river the the battle of uh, missionary ridge the battle of pickett's mill and the battle of uh, kennishaw mountain and he was actually shot in the head and they didn't think that he was going to survive the fighting and uh he did, fortunately, and he was discharged and you know, he then left and he worked uh, for the Department of Treasury as a cotton agent, which means that, you know, if there was any stolen cotton out there, it was his job to go find it. And, you know, he's a writer that that really wasn't him, you know, and, and I know that he, you know, from everything that I've read about Beerus, you know, that really wasn't where his passion was. His passion was, you know, you know, writing and, and not being able to afraid to share his voice. And so he later became famous as a California journalist dedicated to exposing the truths as he understood them, regardless of whose reputation he harmed by all of his, I guess you want to say his pen or his typewriter attacks, you know, for his wit and damning observations on personalities and events of the day, he became known as the wickedest man in San Francisco. So you know, th this guy was not afraid to really kind of say what was on his mind, which I, I think is pretty cool. Um, he was married to Molly Day on Christmas Day of 1871. They had a, uh, their first child was, of course, his, his name was Day. And they actually had two children. And it's interesting because he was friends with Mark Twain. And he was actually somewhat... They had kind of like a turbulent uh, look at, you know, their, their relationship because he was also jealous of Twain because, um, you know, they he had the fame and Ambrose did not have fame. You know, he was always overlooked. And and, you know, people have said that his journalism is actually some of his best work. And I actually go back and I, I, re I recall even on like the Twilight Zone and so on, they actually covered uh, many of the old Civil War, you know, creepy tales that Ambrose wrote, just like The Boarded Window. And so, you know, he's often overlooked. So I encourage our listeners to spend some time, go back through. And if you want to have a laugh, also, there's a book called The Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Spears that's actually a book of... Uh, uh, all of the words that that he had actually put in a lot of his own definitions, you know, and and so you really get a, a feel in these thousand plus words of his of his wit and his uh, personality. And so, the Devil's Dictionary is definitely one to uh, take a look at. But but that's why I picked Ambrose. He was overlooked, and that story scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. Yeah, it's a great so, story. What do you? That's a great story. And I, it, it, if you it, don't mind a couple of observations, um, number absolutely. One, number one, you know, the man was shot in the head during the Civil War. And, you I know, know right? we talked last 
week about um, that book, Fahrenheit 451, that everybody supposedly read in high school. At least I hope they did. And mm -hmm. another book that I read, or a short story that I read in high school was The Incident at Owl Creek. And it's about a uh, Civil yes. War soldier who relives his life only to be discovered lying dead, you know, under a bridge after being shot in the head. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, yeah. and the man, it, the whole story is a flashback as his life flashes before his eyes. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's amazing. I mean, and plus, you know, in this story, the, the boarded window, um, you know, the window, it's really interesting. Um, first off, his indebtedness to Poe. I mean, it's basically a story about a man who thinks his wife is dead when she's not really dead, right. like Poe's premature right. burial. And um, mm -hmm. the window, I mean, it's a threshold. It's where the evil enters the house, the cabin, and where the supernatural edge to the story kind of takes over. Uh, the horror comes in. And Doorways, thresholds, even dreams are often a entrance point in horror literature uh, for the supernatural and the unnatural to enter somebody's life. Uh, and we'll see that theme developed a little bit in the next story. Oh, fantastic. So, so Mike, what, what story do you have for us this week? Well... It's called The Thing in the Moonlight. Morgan is not a literary man. In fact, he cannot speak English with any degree of coherency. That's what makes me wonder about the words he wrote, though others have laughed at it. He was alone the evening it happened. Suddenly, an unconquerable urge to write came over him, and taking a pen in hand, he wrote the following. My name is Howard Phillips. I live at 66 College Street in Providence, Rhode Island. On November 24, 1927, for I do not, not even know what year it may be now, I fell asleep and dreamed, since when I have been unable to awaken. My dream began in a dark, dank, reed-choked marsh that lay under a gray autumn sky, with a rugged cliff of lichen-encrusted stone rising to the north. Impelled by some obscure quest, I ascended a rift or cleft in this beetling precipice, noting as I did the black mouths of many fearsome burrows extending from both walls into the depths of the stony plateau. At several points, the passage was roofed over by a choking of the upper parts of the narrow fissure. These places being exceedingly dark and forb forbidding the perception of such burrows as may have, have existed there. In one such dark space, I felt conscious of a singular accession of fright, as if some subtle and bodiless emanation from the abyss were engulfing my spirit but the blackness was too great for me to perceive the source of my alarm. At length I emerged upon a tableland of moss-grown rock and scanty soil, lit by a pale moonlight which had replaced the, orbiting, the expiring orb of day. Casting my eyes about, I beheld no living object, but was sensible of a very particular stirring below me among the whispering rushes of the pestilential swamp I had lately quitted. After walking for some distance, I encountered the rusty tracks of a street railway and the worm-eaten poles which still held the limp and sagging trolley wire. Following this line, I soon came upon a yellow vestibuled car numbered 1852 of a plain double-truck style common from 1900 to 1910. It was untenanted, but evidently ready to start, the trolley being on the wire and the air brake now and then throbbing beneath the floor. I boarded it and looked vainly about for the light switch, noting as I did the absence of the controller handle and thus implied the brief absence of the motorman. 
Then I sat down in one of the cross seats of the vehicle. Presently, I heard a squishing in the sparse grass towards the left, and I saw the dark forms of two men looming up in the moonlight. They had the regular caps of a railway company, and I could not doubt but they were the conductor and the motorman. Then one of them sniffed with an angular sharpness and raised his, his face to howl at the moon. The other dropped on all fours to run towards the car. I leapt up at once and raced madly out of that car and across the endless leagues of the plateau until exhaustion forced me to stop, doing this not because the conductor had dropped on all fours, but because the face of the motorman was a mere white cone tapering to one blood-red tentacle. I was aware that I only dreamed, but the very awareness was not pleasant. Since that fearful night, I have prayed only for awakening. It has not come. Instead, I have found myself an inhabitant of this terrible dream world. That first night gave way to dawn, and I wandered aimlessly over the lonely swamplands. Then night came. I still wondered, hoping for awakening, but suddenly I parted the weeds and saw before me the ancient railway car. And to one side, a cone-faced thing, lifting its head, and in the streaming moonlight, howling strangely. It has been the same every day. Night always takes me to that place of horror. I've tried not moving with the coming of nightfall, but I must walk in my slumber, for I always awaken with the thing of dread howling before me in the pale moonlight. And I turn, and I flee madly. God! When will I awaken? That is what Morgan wrote. I would go to 66 College Street in Providence, but I fear for what I might find there. So that's, that's, that's spooky. <laughs> yeah. This is um, <laughs> the sort of surrealist uh, dream state writings that mm H.P. -hmm. Lovecraft and his followers have become famous for. What's interesting is the thing in the mm -hmm. moonlight is actually a short story by J. Chapman Minsky based on a letter from H.P. Lovecraft to Donner, Donald Wandrell. As you notice, um, the guy who's supposedly writing this is Howard Phillips. Well, HP stands for right. Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Um, the story was prepared <laughs> for publication by Minsky, who filled in the story surrounding the description of the dream. In places, the letter and the published story are identical, word for word. And it was first published in Bizarre Magazine in January 1941. We're back to our friends, pulp, the pulp magazines and books. Um of course. So, yes. This is this shows you how <laughs> excuse the expression, but Lovecraft's bones have been picked over by other writers that he was a prolific letter writer. Uh it's been estimated he wrote a hundred thousand pieces of correspondence during his lifetime, and he didn't live very long. So he was writing continuously, but mostly in the forms of letters to people. So Minsky changed a few sentences, you know, giving an intro and an outro, and basically wrote about, mm -hmm. uh, wrote a short story based on literally a transcription of one of Lovecraft's letters about a dream he had. So, um, wow. Lovecraft, like, like Poe in the 19th century, Lovecraft in the 20th century is considered the nexus point. He is the most influential horror writer of the 20th century. Uh, because so many people have based concepts on what's considered what they call the Lovecraft mythos. Um, he created an entire mm -hmm. world and point of view, almost a philosophy, based on his rather biz bizarre Victorian, late Victorian uh, reactions to the modern world. In other words, he was horrified by it. He was 
he was terrified by the fact that science was pointing to the idea that the universe was vast and cold and human beings were next to nothing. He was horrified by the influx of immigrants to the United States from all over the world. You know, uh, we talked about um, uh, Ray Bradbury not liking cars and computers. Well, H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft didn't like black people, Jews, Italians, oh boy. Hispanics, Irish wow. Catholics, <laughs> you name it. And wow, so he had a bit of a racial racism issue. Uh, yeah, the, wow. I mean, I don't like to use the N word, but the um, one of his earliest poems was called On the Creation of the N Words. Um, yeah, wow. Um, wow. as a matter of fact, an interesting thing that I would like to point out uh, on HBO right now, they are running a series based on a Lovecraft book called Lovecraft, or not one of his books, but a book written by a Lovecraft follower um, called Lovecraft Country, which interestingly enough examines America and the 1950s, its racism from a black perspective. And of course, it's full Ooh, wow. of creepy, otherworldly, supernatural stuff that is just horrifyingly evil and literally otherworldly. I mean, we're talking about creatures from other dimensions and white supremacist witch cults trying to <laughs> decipher the language of Adam to prove that they are superior people and that... That, that white people should rule the world. I mean, it's got everything in it, but the kitchen sink. And you know what? It is not only terrifying, but it's really a great piece of satire too. So um, a couple Ooh. things that the listeners might find interesting. There is a group called the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. Um, and they produce memorabilia, um, bumper stickers, you know, all kinds of stuff that people can collect. But also, they have produced radio plays, and they have produced a couple of movies. And one of the movies they produced uh, was called Call of Cthulhu, which, you know, Cthulhu is the great uh, old god that Lovecraft has created that is imprisoned under a rock on a sunken island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that someday will raise and Cthulhu is the high priest of all the great old gods who, you know, consider humanity basically playthings if they consider us at all. And when he calls out to them, they will come to this reality and, of course, destroy us. <laughs> Cheery thought. Um, wow. <laughs> so they've done this move, but it's really cool because they've done this story by Lovecraft in the form of a silent movie with movie cards and a soundtrack and everything like that and it's done in a german expressionist style uh like the like the original nosferatu or the cabinet of dr caligari uh and then they did whisperer in darkness which is a crazy outer space tale of aliens and weird monsters living of course in new england and a group an inbred family uh, and brains in jars <laughs> being taken through outer space and all kinds of things like that. And it's called Whisperer in Darkness. And it's done in the style of a 1950s black and white horror science fiction movie. And it, these are great. You can, I think they're both actually on uh, YouTube. You can watch them. So meanwhile, his themes have permeated modern horror. As If you haven't gotten that idea yet, for example, he has one called The Color Out of Space, which was, I think, the first time anybody attempted to make it was an Boris, old Boris Karloff movie called Die, Monster, Die. And now, recently, we have two movies. One, a sort of inspired by movie called Annihilation, which is absolutely creepy as all get out. And, of course, um, the, a recent version of Keller Out of Space starring our buddy Nick Cage where he does what Nick Cage oh, does yeah. best, go crazy. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, as a final note on Lovecraft, 
um, I would like to point out that he's also the creator of the most evil book ever written, the Necronomicon. That's true. Yeah, yeah. which um, mm-hmm. the famous ghost hunters, the Warren, Lorraine Warren uh, and her husband, who sort of followed in the tracks of Hans Holzer and claimed responsibility for everything, oh, yes. every investigation mm-hmm. and exorcism from the Amityville Horror to you name it. Um, and of course, they're yeah. famous for the having the evil doll Annabelle in their uh, in their yes. famous museum in their basement of their home. And of course, Annabelle was described as you could feel her evil clutching fingers, you know, reaching out to you. And the real Annabelle doll, when mm-hmm. you see it, is uh, a Raggedy Ann doll. And Raggedy Ann dolls, I know, don't have right? Any fingers, yeah. So. So they have in a case with like chains over it and a do not touch sign, you know, the most evil book ever written, the Necronomicon. And they seem to be unaware that it was all made up. It was just a trope created by H.P. Lovecraft. But how many different modern horror stories have revolved around the Necronomicon, especially horror movies, all those evil dead movies. It's the Necronomicon, you know, uh, so there you go. Mm-hmm. I mean, there mm-hmm. is as weird and as unpleasant an individual as he was. Um, there is no one more influential to authors writing in the modern genre of horror than H.P. Lovecraft. Well, you know, I, I must say to you, know, I read this article before our podcast about the 10 things you should know about H.P. Yes. Lovecraft. And, and it didn't help me feel any... Um, less creeped out by this guy because okay um first of all the the story that you shared it kind of sounds like he was having some sort of a i mean first of all to get a letter from him about a dream that he had would be creepy enough but it said that he suffered severe night terrors yeah and so he must have had some sort of a sleep paralysis issue or something back then and that really wasn't diagnosed in the late 1800s or, or or whatever so you know he had night terrors uh but then it also a, a creepy fact about him is that both his mother and father were separately committed to the same mental institutions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so this is where this guy kind of came from and, you know, he wanted to be an astronomer, you know, he, he loved science, of course, you know, science fiction, but he never finished high right. school. And, and and look at how prolific he has been in, you know, this, you know, you know the writing is, him. and I had mentioned earlier that, that, when talking about Ambrose Bierce, he was friends with Mark mm-hmm. Twain, of course. Well, your author was friends with Harry Houdini. Yeah. They were like best yeah, buds. They were. Which so, is weird because, of course, Harry thought, not only was Harry Houdini, uh, uh, you know, he was Jewish, uh, profoundly Jewish, as a matter of mm-hmm. fact, but so was yes. Lovecraft was briefly married and his wife was Jewish. I mean, this guy... Yeah, so how does that work? Uh, this guy <laughs> had was so all over the place as far as I would have to say his mental health is concerned that um well, no wonder. You know, no wonder. Plus, if you his his writing is actually difficult to read because he didn't write like a modern mm-hmm. writer. I mean, uh, you know, Carter and um some other the guy who created Conan the Barbarian, you know, all these kind of pulp writers oh, yeah. mm-hmm. were correspondents with him. And when you re- actually read Lovecraft, um, I think I was like 30 when I finally figured out what a what a gibbous moon is. <laughs> but, you know, he, he writes like he writes like he's living in the 19th century, not the 20th century. His his prose is florid right. and you know, really, um, you better have a dictionary <laughs> on hand because he's not he's yeah, certainly yeah. not what you would call a modern writer. But his ideas spawn so many movies and so many. I mean, do you want to see a great Lovecrafty movie? Watch one called Out of the Mouth of Madness. It's absolutely fantastic. Or pretty much uh, anything. Uh, for example, the modern version of The Thing, while it's true to Jack Finney's book, has huge amounts of Lovecraft elements in it. So does Alien, the movie Alien. You know, 
Lovecraft is all over that stuff. So, um, yeah, profoundly, wow. profoundly influential. And a real weirdo. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I think, yeah, I mean, even, I mean, every picture that I found of this guy, you know, I mean, just this picture creeps me out. Oh, he I looks mean, like he, he has like this shot. blank stare and he's like, shell shock i you know he looks like somebody that if i saw him in an alley i would probably want to walk the other way yeah. and he just looks like a i don't know i mean at least at least ambrose beersley I, it, he lived during the time of the civil war he lived out in the frontier i mean he almost fought against the sioux indians i mean you know the, it was like a different time you know and he and he wrote differently and you know you could understand what he was saying but then also too you know <laughs> there were some words that he used that you had to kind of go back and say okay well, oh wait yeah, that means to cut, you know. And so these guys both did use some some unique phraseology, I guess, you know, in their writing. But they both pretty much painted a picture that was rather frightening. And uh, you know, so 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 this Halloween, I think, you know, it's definitely good to explore these two guys um, and 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 just read some of their stories. I, I think you'll plus be frightened. Don't forget, we don't know how Ambrose Spears died. He disappeared, and he was That's never true. seen again. Yeah. That's Hope true. the aliens didn't get him. And, and, and I guess... <laughs> <laughs> and, and, from, and from what I understand, you know, to kind of go on the creepy side again, you know, Lovecraft isn't even buried under his own no. headstone. Because, the, like, like, no, he's buried under his mother's headstone in... in from what I understand it. So there's a lot of weird stuff around both oh, yeah. these guys. And, and so I think that, so I think we definitely picked uh, some good ones to highlight for the Halloween terror fest <laughs> tales of terror, as we call it. Um, so as I always do, I, I want to ask you, Michael, um, we have a busy month. I mean, it's already been a busy month and, and we're only looking at like, we're only like halfway through. What's coming well, up? Well, um, still trying to figure out the formatting for our next two episodes. One is our shared podcast with our friend in Canada. And the other one, of course, will be our live cast from the bowels of Baker Mansion um, on Halloween night. So you're our tech guy, so you'll be helping us with that. But you know what? The holidays are around the corner, and... You know, nothing says holidays like alien abduction. We may be talking to our, our good friend uh, <laughs> uh, who is the UFO expert. We <laughs> will try to pull in some other things. And then coming in December, we are going to talk about the holidays. But we're going to be talking about oh, oh, oh. folklore around the holidays, number one, uh, drawn from my presentation have yourself a scary little christmas and we're also going to be talking oh, about boy. everybody's favorite christmas ghost story author charles dickens so those oh, are things we're staying tuned charles for. dickens yeah yeah you know wonderful yeah one they, of the great bits boy. of folklore is that people used to tell the favorite time to tell ghost stories was christmas eve that's a fact. I mean, Dickens' story, you know, is a horror. It's actually a ghost story. Yeah. You know the, it's it, so you know when when you look at Christmas Carol, you know there are ghosts that you know are part of that. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. it but our calendar is full, and you know we we have to thank our listeners for that because you know we get uh, input all the time from our listeners, and you know, we appreciate your support, and uh, uh, we appreciate you sharing our podcast with everyone all around the globe i mean we are we are in countries that i haven't heard of and uh you know we're continuing to grow i don't think we're in mars yet i did look on the analytics and you know it shows the world and then it shows you know the globe and then it shows yeah we didn't hit any of the planets yet so i thought ray bradbury would have put us over the top with that but yeah come on martians um, get on the stick you know i know i know right yeah but uh, you know what? I, I think there's still a, a, another great story out there that we haven't heard. And so, and it's probably from you. So I would ask our listeners, if you have a story, it's a, if it's a unique story, if it's something that happened to you in your childhood or something creepy or, or, you know, we want to hear about it. 
you know, so contact us. You can email us via the email addresses in our profile, or you can hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash the podcast about everything, or on Instagram at podcast about everything, or on Twitter at podcast about EV2, and be sure to share. And I must point out, our last episode with Ray Bradbury was actually picked up and shared on Twitter by the official Ray Bradbury Society, their, their, their official group and their center. And so I wanted to give a quick shout out to them. And uh, again, go over to our Twitter. You can see where they're located and, and visit their, their center and their museum. But I want to thank everyone for joining us for this creepy episode of a podcast about everything. Be safe. And remember, happy It's almost time. Happy, happy Halloween, Halloween.